0: Blog Talk Radio
1: this week in accountable care on the blog talk radio network i'm greg masters the creator producer and principal host of the show this week in accountable care is brought to you by health innovation media where we monitor the innovation impulse from idea to business model and on the show today we continue our exploration into the grand restructuring of the american healthcare system or non System, as many would say. And on the show today is uh, someone I'm really excited to meet uh, by the name of Marguerite gur You can follow her on Twitter at Marguerite Gur-Arie. I'm going to spell that for you. It's the at sign, M-A-R-G-A-L-I-T-G-U-R-A-R-I-E. Marguerite is a kindred spirit a Twitter colleague and someone whose work I've followed via the blog circuit. She publishes the On Technology blog on healthtech.blogspot.com and via several white papers and, of course, on Twitter. And let me tell you a little bit about Margalit before I bring her into the chat. Margalit is a founder of BizMed a company devoted to supporting practicing physicians through software and services that simplify the business of medicine. Marguerite has served in executive and consulting roles of various health IT companies, and her mission is to support and strengthen independent private practice, particularly in rural and underserved areas. Marguerite blogs and writes in support of primary care, she is an Israeli-born aeronautical engineer turned tech-wiz who helped build early portals and EMRs. Residing in rural Missouri, she watches as health becomes increasingly industrialized without improving results, and she inherently understands the need of independent practices. So with that as a background, Margalit, welcome to This Week in Accountable Care.
0: Thank you, Greg. and. Thanks for having me here. As I'm
1: glad you, I'm glad you could make it, I sorry to, to step on you there. So why don't we kick it off first? Um, tell us a little bit about, about you, uh, what, what I see aeronautical engineering in your history, but talk about uh, your, your journey from that, I, I guess, to, to healthcare What What was that like? What, what spawned that for you?
0: Spawn, I think, is the right word because it, um, it it happened because I spawned three children and <laughs> I decided to leave the workforce and kind of raise them by hand. And when it was time to go back, and I was in the middle of my Ph.D. at the time, when I was, was time to go back, I realized that somebody ended the Cold War and there was no more need for weapons in space or anywhere else. So I had to find something else to do. So what's better than healthcare? And actually that happened by pure chance. I started working for a consulting company, and I was sent to an account that happened to be a huge hospital chain. And I don't know, most of us probably don't know how they happened to fall in love with healthcare IT, but that's what happened to me, and um, I switched after that to the ambulatory um, EMR scene, and that was about uh, 2004 when I left the hospital IT portion of my career. And I've been with with the little guys, the little docs, dogs, or I like to call them my guys, uh, ever since.
1: So that that led you into developing the company BizMed. Tell us a little bit about that genesis and what you do over there.
0: Yeah. So um, BizMed really is, uh, I mean, I don't know that the name is really indicative of what it does. I am going to be 100% um, honest because I can't be otherwise, unfortunately. And uh, the way I see this company is that it's, Really, its mission is to run interference for the um, the private, independent, small practices, primary care, and not only primary care, by the way. And there is an onslaught of regulation and transformations and all the things ending with TION right now all over health care. And it's very difficult to service. And I learned that when I was in the EMR uh, Actually, it's it's extremely difficult to serve to be cost effective in serving small practices. The cost of sales is high, the cost of support is high, the cost of education is high, and they just tend to keep their heads down and do their 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 work, and they're not reading blogs or keeping up with the literature, so they really don't know what they're supposed to be doing. Things that seem obvious to us are just not. Not like that, in that particular community. So with that in mind, we figured there's a lot of consulting that is available to upscale practices, to health systems, and it costs a fortune, and these guys can't afford that. So the goal was originally to put consultants out of business and offer... Consulting, or at least 80%, you know, the 80-20 rule, offer like 80% of consulting and services to these little docs uh, over the Internet in a software-as-a-service kind of intelligent platform and help them be where they need to be, not where they don't want to be, but where they need to be for their own good. So, we started we were thinking originally about meaningful use and all that EMR stuff, but that kind of uh, we weren't ready at that time and what we do now is we're helping mainly primary care practices with patient centered medical home recognition and it's all delivered on the web, and hopefully we're giving away the store for free, the software is free, all kinds of things. Are I'm just looking for a way to, to make money at this point But I haven't found that one yet So that's that's what we do And that's what we're trying to help them be Position themselves in a way that they're not left behind And they can take advantage of incentives And all the things that are coming down the pike In this new world of healthcare
1: So uh, r- running interference for uh, uh, private practices, and particularly in uh, underserved or or rural markets, um, there's a lot of interference to sort of intermediate or disintermediate. It would seem that uh, uh, there's certainly no shortage of demand for something like that. Are you finding the – well, first up, are you finding the – penetration of independent practice associations out there or are this simply onesie twosie physician offices completely disconnected from, from the rest of their uh, of their peers?
0: Yeah. So, you know, their um IPAs or independent practice associations are not very common in the Midwest. And we we work nationally and we have practices in Hawaii and stuff like that. I know they are very strong in California, you know Washington State, and uh, there there are some big ones there. Those those that were able to come together that way can get some uh, advantages from being in an IPA. But as you probably very well know, Greg, IPAs come in different different flavors. Some of them are just on paper, some, you know, just negotiating contracts, maybe a little bit sort of uh, referrals and prior odds. In California, they are, a lot of them are, are really HMOs. So it varies a lot, but I think that my biggest concern is the onesie twosies that takes four hours to drive to an office like that from the airport, the, near, the nearest airport. And then when you get there, you'll find out that if that guy is 57, 59, and he's going to retire, and when he closes his doors, the only thing that's going to come there for his patients is maybe a, a van with a nurse or something once a week. And those guys are my concern. Not, not the doctors, let's be honest. Not the doctors themselves. It's their patients who are underserved in so many other areas and now they're about to become completely underserved also in the medical area and that's that's my biggest concern
1: i, I think uh, the recent uh, 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 i guess in georgia and, and perhaps elsewhere uh, w- one of their ways to, to get around the uh, the mtala provision of seeing and treating stabilizing Uh, Anyone, regardless of their ability to pay, their answer to that is to just uh, either rescind the law or to somehow make it uh, uh, provide an exemption for some of the rural hospitals to not have to provide those services. So it's an interesting, interesting perspective. So as you're running this interference, it sounds like in some respects you're doing some proactive stuff, maybe a lot of damage control. Are you trying to breathe life into accountable or managed care types of vehicles, or are you inevitably uh, crossing the opportunity for retainer-based or some might even say concierge type of medicine, where primary care is basically ex- exiting the system because it's, it's too burdensome? Is, is that part of your consideration process uh, with your clients?
0: Well, no. I I can't find fault with individual physicians that choose to go to direct primary care or concierge or concierge kind of implies uh, very wealthy and very expensive and there are some of them in small towns that are not expensive or or fancy or anything. I can't find fault with that, but on the other hand, I don't believe that that is a solution, and I'm not. We're not dealing with those kind of practices. They left the system. The regulations largely don't apply to them anymore. They choose to practice free of uh, government uh, or, or or insurance interference. And, and I'm not talking about the, You know, it's, it's kind of funny when you mention concierge because there are there are large corporations. <laughs> Some of them owned by, um, at least one of them that I know that is owned by Procter & Gamble, that is supposedly direct primary care. Well, I don't know that that's so much direct primary care as as a doctor opening an office in Wichita, Kansas, and charging 50 bucks a month or something. It's, It's a different type of managed care, I think. And I know there are several experiments out there. We're not dealing with those guys. Those guys are doing something else. And they don't take Medicaid patients, uh, by and large. And my concern, as I said before, is the underserved patient population, be it in urban areas like we have here in St. Louis, downtown East St. Louis, take your pick, or in the more rural uh, areas of Missouri like the Ozarks where poverty is rampant. And I don't see a lot of concierge practices in those areas, and I don't think there ever will be. So. Those, those are the, the places where, where we're trying to breed life, as you say, into the independent doctors. The small practices that are still there. There aren't a lot left, but what, for whatever is there, is there, and we're trying to keep them alive. They are having a lot of difficulty, meaning all the regulations, understanding the regulations, figuring out what people want them to do. They really don't know. They just want to see their patients and provide the best care they can, or they know how, and I know that some people think that that's not sufficient anymore and they need to run dashboards and do all kinds of stuff. The problem is that for most of these guys in these small towns, they don't need dashboards because they know their patients. They go to church with them. They go to the Rotary Club or whatever. They eat at the same restaurants, The kids go to the same schools. So they know them. They know them personally. They know who's got diabetes, who's got gout, who doesn't feel well today and so forth. So it's a different type of medicine, maybe a slower type, maybe not so fancy and not so uh, glitzy. But I don't know if it's better or not, but that's what there is down there, and the alternative to that is not uh, Kaiser in the Ozarks. It's nothing in the Ozarks. So that's what...
1: We're trying to protect if we can. Wow, that sounds like a tall order. Uh <laughs> yeah. So, so uh, I want to uh, add to that uh, your, um, uh, your discussion around this whole question of um, uh, is there a war on doctors? You, you penned a uh, blog post called uh, Our Cheap and Productive Lives on April the 22nd. And you um, you note, uh, so, so you think there's a war on doctors, don't you? It, it certainly looks that way from your particular vantage point. The government is deftly intruding into your professional life with a computerized fifth column that is extracting information on your every move. And to add insult to injury, it forces you to actually collect data which is to be used against you in the court of public opinion. And then you go on to say, well, there really is no war on doctors. There's a war on patients, and doctors are merely collateral damage. What do you mean by that?
0: Well, we're getting into uh, political realities now, and um, I'm going to have to preface here that I'm a flaming liberal, and uh, proudly so. And what is happening in this country today affects healthcare probably more than particular um quality measures about hemoglobin a1c testing there is incredible extraction of wealth from most of the or at least in my opinion from most of the us uh, citizenry that is flowing upwards to to some rarefied areas with very few people that have a lot of money and I think that the effort continues because not all the money has been extracted yet. And doctors or medicine or health care is an expense in that column. It's something that, you know, people need in order to survive or to feel better or to have less pain. And there seems to be a question now, well, how much doctoring do you need, Okay. Maybe you can do it a little less and a little less. Maybe we don't have to pay doctors so much money. Why are we spending billions of dollars? Medicare just release their uh, misguided data for a fraction of the population in Medicare. I don't know what that data was really, but they did release that, and you're looking at, uh, what was it, $77 billion or something like that, and that is for two-thirds of Medicare beneficiaries because it did not include Medicare Advantage. And not even all of them. but So you're looking at billions of dollars being spent on health care for people, and I think there are uh, corporations and powerful interests in this country that are not interested in spending billions of dollars on health care for people. And that means that doctors should take less money, and that means that everybody else should take less money. And I think that that is what it's boiling down to now, Doctors feel that this is personal. It's not. It's business, right? It's it's not personal. Nobody wants to hurt doctors. There's half a million of practicing docs, six hundred thousand. I don't think anyone is after them personally. It, they are just victim of this sucking sound, you know, that goes from from leaving all the all all, all working folks behind, uh, keeping them, giving them just enough to be productive, and create. Profits and all that for for the corporate entities that seem to be running this country right now, and but not not more than that, so I kind of think that doctors are just falling byways. They are going to be a service that's going to be automated that's going to be replaced, just like we replaced food, you know grown real food with food in packages, and now everybody's telling us to shop on the you know uh, perimeters of supermarkets because the cheap food we created seems to be killing us, we are now going to create a health care system that eventually is going to be killing us and we're going to be told to shop at the perimeter, uh, you know, and look for stuff that looks like food used to look like and now look for stuff that looks like doctors used to look like. So to go back and close the loop on this, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to preserve those little docs that you know for, for future generations to have
1: a choice it's a tough choice and i, I think uh, some some would say that um, trying to make what exists out there actually work um, versus stop the bleed if you will to direct practice or variations onto direct practice is almost an impossible task. That it's 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 an either or proposition. That that the the the, the, uh, the complexity of American healthcare is such that e- even movements into simplification like bundled payment or accountable care organizations that have budget-driven uh, uh, and, uh, objectives with quality standards are just too little too late and it's inevitable that this house of cards is going to collapse what do you say about that
0: I disagree I think we're overdoing this I think this the sky is falling thing is a little bit um, it's getting out of hand I mean you can't you know Greg you can't open anything today any respectable article that doesn't start with our system is broken it's a mess it's dysfunctional it's fragmented a fee for service, which is inducing, um, you know, volume, and we have to move to value and all that. But here, here, is, here is a very simple thing. All you have to do is look, uh, you know, two feet across the border to Canada, uh, several um, hundreds of miles or whatever, at Europe, and you can see other developed nations. Some of them are very luxury-oriented, like Switzerland, or, you know, we're not talking about um, NHS, socialized medicine, or even Canadian type, but you can look at Germany, you can look at France, you can look at Switzerland. And what you see there is that nobody's fretting these things out. Doctors are in private practice, in small practices in a lot of places. They are paid fee for service, and uh, they're doing a lot better than we are. So the question is, what's the difference between the way these other countries are doing it and what we're doing? And it's not fee-for-service, and it's not private practice, and lo and behold, it's not even the volume. We're being told that we're using so much more, but all the numbers that come from OECD are not indicative of that. We're going to the doctor less. We're spending less time in hospitals. We have less discharges. So yeah, a few things here and there are higher, and we need to work on that. But it's not like some horrendous disaster. So I think we're solving the wrong problem. Can 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 I say that?
1: <laughs> sure. <laughs> so it, it, can the Affordable Care Act work, or is our future single payer?
0: Well, I'm sure it can work and I'm sure it will be made to work for quite some time. I mean, it's uh, the Affordable Care Act is um I know it's it's good for people that that got uh, Medicaid expanded. I wish all the states would would expand Medicaid uh, as, you know, that that that's a great thing to to give more people um ability to see some sort of care better than nothing but the affordable care act is working very well for insurance companies for drug companies for device companies they don't even want to even elizabeth warren is opposing a tax on devices so you know and we've just delivered a whole bunch of customers to them we're going to deliver more the plans itself have very high deductibles, so it's a good deal for the insurers. We're being very careful to hand them over healthy people uh, when we help them, you know, not everybody's sick. Um, I think the, the, in, in today's the powers to be, the where they're aligned, I think the Affordable Care Act is going to go on for quite some time. I, I mean, even if Republicans, you know, get in the White House, the Senate, whatever, I don't think the Affordable Care Act is going anywhere. It's, it's too good for, for corporate entities to, to be dismantled.
1: So what's your sense of um, uh, the proliferation and the movement from paper to practice of an ACO or accountable care or a patient-centered medical home concept taking root in rural and underserved areas.
0: I don't know about ACOs. I've actually very recently um, had an interesting experience with that and I think I talked to you about it a a while ago of some physicians, uh, very forward thinking folks in not rural but very blue collar areas that were thinking about an ACO and it's daunting I mean, they're not certain they can pull it off, although these folks have extremely long experience with uh taking risk and um toward aging models. but it's 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 very difficult it's It's very hard they're afraid they don't know how to move around that. but I think that in lieu of the a c o the full blown a c o concept The concept of a medical home, uh, the way it was defined by the primary care um, associations, I think that is, in my opinion and in many docs' opinions, once they understand what it is and and they they just ignore the hype that is around it, that's how medicine should be practiced, and that's how a lot of them practice. They just don't document it, and maybe they don't do every little thing. And maybe if we can get them to concentrate on, and <laughs> I was talking to a small group of, of um, ideal micro practices. Uh, I'm not sure that's what they called, but and we said the same thing. Why don't you pick 10 people in your practice that are you know you know that are the, the highest risk? And how are you going to find them? Well, we know who they are. Of course, you know who they are you know exactly who they are, so just make them VIPs, make them make them special, take their calls at any time they call, be at their disposal longer and forever and after hours and whatever, just those 10, not everybody. A 25-year-old that uh, is healthy and um, is partying out in Florida at spring break doesn't need you on on the phone 24 by 7, but but uh, you know, a 67-year-old with a whole bunch of problems may. So Just pick those and concentrate on them, and that will make everybody happy because that's where, unfortunately, what most of the money gets spent. So I think the principles of a medical home applied correctly and maybe uh, focused on certain groups are going to help a lot, and I'd like to help them do that for their patients, and we're trying to do that. So... I see that as a first step Greg before the whole ACO engine kicks in. I, I don't know. I mean, it sounds okay, but I don't I don't know how it reaches, you know, through the crevices down down to to where it needs to go.
1: And how do you see the uh, conversation around patient uh, engagement, patient activation Uh, bolstering health literacy to be more informed consumers or participants in their health. How do you see that interacting with this?
0: I think it's a good thing and I think patients should be involved for, you know, it's a double-edged sword you quote in my blog. I think there is a lot of things coming down that are really called patient-centered but they're quite the opposite. It's like putting a target on your back and calling it uh, person-centered execution. But Talking about the, the, those high risk and those people, I, I think it's it's important to maybe redefine what patient engagement activation and all that is. And, and you know, I love that article that Atul Gawande wrote in the New Yorker a long time ago, The Hot Spotters. And that has been – they took it and they completely destroyed the idea. But that original idea of that Dr. Brenner going to the hospital and sitting with that patient – in his room, just sitting with him. That's, that's patient engagement for me. That's what I mean when I say patient, patient engagement, and that's what I want to see happen. I don't really want to see a bunch of motivational speaking seminars or something like that. I don't think that's patient engagement or a bunch of apps that nobody uses. Uh, it's a human thing. It's a one-on-one thing. It's make a connection to your doctor and let him help you.
1: And this is, after all, a people business, as you correctly pointed out earlier. Well, there you have it, Marguerite. Uh, our, our half hour flew by as I knew it would it's very cool to finally meet you and uh, to hear your optimism and your differential treatment of the uh, of, of, of the um, the new marketplace, if you will, and trying to salvage what's out there. So uh, I do appreciate that. And uh, you can follow Marguerite on Twitter at Marguerite Ari, <laughs> And uh, check out her blog on healthtech.blogspot.com. She's a prolific writer. And um, thanks again for coming on today, Marguerite, And uh, we will continue this conversation in the future.
0: Thank you, Great Greg. Answers. It's been a pleasure.
1: All right. Bye now.